Okay, so I'm glad you're here. And uh, I just want to share just a, a few things and just tell you a couple of things that happened yesterday, which were kind of uh, just in this uh, continuing adventures of coincidence, or not coincidence. Um, so, so we, uh, at the Happy Minion yesterday in Los Angeles, we were honored to have the Biala Rebbe uh, come and... and uh, and be with us, and you know, it's a, it's very impressive when a Hasidic Rebbe is there. You know, especially he's got his his his, his assistants, his his gabbais, and and you know, they, they come in and you know, they're big guys with you know long black silk you know kapotas they call them, and shreimalach the big fur hats and large taluses, and you know, and then they're accompanying the Rebbe and everything like that, and and all the rest. So there were people there yesterday who don't normally come, but were there because they, they knew the Rebbe was going to be with us. So, um, and it was so nice that the Rebbe felt comfortable that he wanted to be there. So that was nice too. So anyway, there was one particular guy who caught my eye, and I figured, I had never seen him at the, uh, at the Happy Minion before, and I figured he was there because the Rebbe was there, and he was one of, you know, his uh, people. And anyway, just kind of struck me and didn't have a chance to talk to him. Later on that afternoon... Uh, he was there, and I said to him, I said, so, so, you know, where are you from? You know, what's, what's your story? And he told me that he was from, uh, visiting from Canada, and that he was just here for the week, and that he likes the Happy Minion, so he wanted to come. And I realized that there was actually no connection between him and the Rebbe, and so I was like, all right, you know, whatever it is. And then he said to me, he said, you want to hear something odd? He says, I'm up in Vancouver, and he said, there's not a lot going on up there Jewishly, and I try to kind of keep, keep, keep in a place of inspiration. And um, there's a book that I've been learning for the last year that someone gave me. It's the book of the Biala Rebbe's Torah. And I just came in today, and there's the Biala Rebbe. So I thought that was pretty 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 fascinating, you know, amazing. And I have my own story to add to that, right, just kind of as a P.S. So listen to this. I, I knew the Biala Rebbe's father, and I had a few meetings with him, and this is going back about 22 years ago, okay? And uh, I remember, you know, it's kind of funny, I remember I was rushing to, this is like, this is not the story I wanted to tell you, this is a little P.S., but it just stays in my mind all these years later. I, I left no time to get to the airport, it was Thanksgiving, which is, everyone knows, the busiest time, and, and everything like that, and, and I had just seen the Rebbe, and he blessed me that everything was going to be good. And I remember thinking, there's no way I can actually make this flight. <laughs> and the parking was all off, and... It was actually, if you, if, you, if you put it down in terms of numbers and math, it really was impossible to make the flight. But I had just come from the Rebbe, and, and then I made the flight. And I know that's not going to sound like an awesome miracle story, but I have to tell you, that aside, as unimpressive as that sounds, it stayed with me all these years later, and I remember really feeling in the moment, wow, this was the Rebbe's bracha. But anyway, that aside, here, here's the story I actually wanted to tell you. Which is that, um, actually I'll tell you another story I didn't want to tell you. Because it's about this Rebbe, but it's leading up to the story that I actually wanted to tell you. Which was that we were in our home, this is about two years ago, and then uh, someone just kind of looked out the window, it was lunchtime, and our street is not like a very well-traveled street. It's not obscure or hidden, but it's just people don't walk on it that much because a lot of that is just because it's L.A. and this is a residential area. Not a lot of foot traffic. Anyway, someone looks out the window and across the street they see the Biala Rebbe with his, with his retinue, with his entourage, you know? And it was so strange. Like walking by our house on the opposite side of the street. And so I just, I didn't know what to do. So I ran outside the house and I caught up with him, and I said, Rebbe, come, come into my house, please. Please come into my house. Have something to eat or to drink. And he looked at me, and he thought about it for a moment, and then he said, yes. And then they went, and so this 
kind of this gathering came into my house, and then he sat down, and then I had a picture up in my room. Actually, it's in my son's room. It's a big color photograph, and all of a sudden it hit me. It's of the Biala Rebbe, because it's sort of like of a um, of a of a of a celebration. It's um, if you're familiar with a an, an upsharing. When, a, when a, a little boy, it's a custom, it's not a law, but it's a custom that when a little boy reaches three years old, he gets his first haircut. And uh, anyway, this was the Rebbe's father, and he was giving his grandson, who was this Rebbe's son, an upsharing. So it's a picture of a whole celebration scene with him sitting down and smiling and cutting his grandson's hair. And so he's sitting there and I said, I have something to show you. And so I bring down this big framed photo. It's like like an art photo, you know, because someone really took it beautifully and artistically. A big, big photo. I brought it down and I showed it to him. And he wasn't that surprised. <laughs> Which I guess is maybe to be the most surprising part of that was that he wasn't that surprised. But there, you know, there he was with his family and his son and his dad, you know, who had since passed away many years ago. Okay, so anyway... So here's actually the story. Here's the story. I met with his, his father, the Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, Allah Shalom, uh, and it was uh, around 22 years ago. And for some reason, I got it in my head. I guess this is a bit of a chutzpah, a bit uh, impertinent, but I don't know. I said to him, I want you to come up with a Torah, like a Chiddush in Torah, like a new Torah, just for me. Like, I want you to design it for me. I want you to custom make a Torah for me. I don't think I've ever asked anyone before or since that, but that's what I asked him. And he thought, and then he said, okay. And he gave me a whole Torah. And here was the essence of it. He said, I'm not saying it the way he said it, I'm just kind of giving it to you what the bottom line was. He said, you work in Hollywood, and, uh, and that's okay. He said, he said, Abraham, actually he started with the, this part first, but I kind of skipped to the bottom line. But anyway, he said, Abraham makes a treaty with Avimelech. Avimelech was the, you know, the, the king in the area there. He says, Abraham makes a treaty with Avimelech, but... It's a treaty, but Avram understands that he's in one world and Avimelech is in another world. But they make a treaty. And that's okay. But Avram understands that they, that they inhabit, so to speak, different paths. And he said, you're working in Hollywood, that's okay. But understand that your path is not that path. That's what he said. And, um, and anyway, listen to this now. His son, the current Rebbe, Which was at the, or the, the Biala Rebbe, who was there at the Happy Minion yesterday, the Biala Rebbe is there yesterday. He gets called to the Torah to have an Aliyah in the Torah. And the, you know, the Torah is pretty big. This is 22 years later. This section, there's a very small section that you get for your Aliyah. The section of the Torah that he got was the passage <laughs> that his father had had based his Torah to me on 22 years earlier. That happened yesterday. It was about the treaty between Abraham and Abimelech. You know? So, you know, God, you know, I heard one of Rabbi Green's students said, you know, People say it's a small world. Small world. Right? Like if you run into someone, like to explain coincidence, small world. And his response is, it's not a small world. It's just incredibly well run. <laughs> right? So there's, there's an example of just how utterly, utterly precise things are. The thing is, is that, you know, like the Rambam, or I heard in the name of the Rambam, I should say, that life is like this. And the, 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 what he compared it to, and I guess it's kind of funny because 
Because it's about traveling in the desert, and I guess when we use this sort of language today, the imagery is very poetic, but I guess when I think about it, back then this was, this was actually a very real metaphor back then, so for whatever that's worth, just as a historical PS. But anyway, he said that, you know, life is like basically you're traveling through the desert. Now, traveling through the desert, I, I've never done it on a camel, I've certainly never done that, but... You know, there are these vast, vast wastelands, basically. And how do you know what direction that you're going in exactly? And you're traveling really slowly, for the most part. And you've got days of travel before you get to where you need to get to. And then it's nighttime. Okay, so people navigate by the stars and things like this. I, I understand there were ways to do it. But, but at the same time, though, you know... Landmarks aren't really landmarks because you've got big sand dunes, right? And maybe you want to chart your course according to these sand dunes, but then at night you've got these terrible windstorms and that these landmarks that were giant landmarks one moment are all of a sudden gone. You know? And so what he says is, like, imagine you're in the middle of the desert. I guess, let's imagine that there are no stars out or anything like that. So you're in the middle of the desert it's nighttime, and all of a sudden there's a flash of lightning. And you're able to see what direction you need to go in. But then it goes back down to darkness. So the Rambam says that basically that's life. That's life. That we get these flashes, these flashes of insight, of understanding, and then they get covered over again. And that's, that's what God wants. That's actually what God wants. And if you think about it, that's an incredible vote of confidence in us. That we're able to sort of like take those moments and to nurture them, treasure them, protect them, guard them, you know, interpret them. Like that's, that's a big deal. That's not... That, I mean, if you want to know how much God loves you, the fact that he constructed the world in a way that's often very counterintuitive is a tremendous sign of love and respect. So, you know, one of the things that people say about the Torah, and I think that it, it, it's, it's based on a, a lack of understanding, but, but, but let me just speak it out, is that people think that it's an ancient book. First of all, they think it's a book. It's not a book. But they think it's an ancient book, and that one that probably maybe may have made sense thousands of years ago, but today, you know, come on, let's be real. Where does it say computers in the Torah? Where does it say, you know, like the lunar module in the Torah? Where does it say, you know, you know penicillin in the Torah? Like, how can you say that this is a current book if all of these very important, you know, things don't seem to be in there? First of all, everything is in the Torah, but that aside... That aside, but what people, I think, I think the point people miss when, when approaching Torah is that, is that the Torah is describing the inside of the inside of reality for all eternity. For all eternity. And that the language that it uses is contemporary language from a previous time, in, in some cases. But what the content of the Torah is forever. And and let me tell you why I'm bringing this up right now. Because whenever I think of sand dunes in the desert, I think of contemporary mores. In other words, a lot of times there are issues that a certain generation has, or generations have. And we think that's the truth. But oftentimes those are like sand dunes in the desert. And several generations later... They blow away. And all of a sudden, people don't care about that. Or they think, how did we ever think that that was as important as it was? How did we ever even come to the point of sacrificing our lives and our children's lives for that thing which was like, it seemed so real, it was a figment. It blew away. I mean, can you imagine what communists in Russia, like what the grandparents today who grew up under that system, like, what they think about communism and how much bloodshed and how, much, how many ruined lives. I mean, there was nothing more real and concrete 
than that. And it's just gone. It's gone. So, so what the Torah does is, it's not addressing these sand dunes, which in our generation look like nothing could be more firmer or more concrete than these issues. And yet, they're not ultimately real issues. That's, now, I don't want to say that in a disrespectful way. That doesn't mean that we don't wrestle with them. That doesn't mean that we, it doesn't cause us internal pain to try to reach some sort of peace about them. But nonetheless, are they ultimately real or not? That, that, that's the point. And so when the Torah lays out its ideology, it's laying it out on the, most, the grandest, most cosmic scale. And it's talking about things that are true for all times. Being fully aware that will be, there will be certain generations where certain mitzvot or certain issues are like the height of political incorrectness. And yet, in the long term, you look back and you go, oh yeah, no, no, no. You know? That's, that's what it was. So, so I remember in my own personal journey, spiritual journey, which is ongoing, right? Where I thought, you know, you know, it's kind of funny, like, when I used to hear something and I didn't like it, I'd go, that's dumb. Like, it would be like, that would, it would be like, a, like, it just would be like, instant reaction. That makes no sense whatsoever. That's dumb. <laughs> right? And then, as I started learning a little bit more, I was like, you know something? I, uh, I don't understand. Then that's what I'd say. I don't understand. And I'd want to have it explained to me. And then, and I'm just talking for myself, at a certain point, I realized that the sages and that their, their insight into human nature and interpersonal dynamics was greater than my knowledge of it. And, and that they knew me on some level better than I knew me. Because every single person, and it's, a, it's something that is on some level a blessing, it's a survival mechanism and a coping mechanism, we have a certain self-love and a certain self-protectiveness which shields us from certain truths about ourselves sometimes. And we, needed to be, we need to be shielded from those things on some level because, you know something, I, I remember I, I was in Jerusalem many years ago and um, I don't know how it happened exactly, but I wanted to learn at this particular yeshiva. I was invited to learn there. And um, I didn't realize that it was in an incredibly dangerous area. And uh, anyway, I went and I got there. And I guess I was a little bit late. And the person I was supposed to meet gave me a nice smile and a nice greeting and said, Oh, I'm so glad that you're here because someone was just stabbed and I was afraid it was you. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I went up there and I, I was learning there and I don't remember a lot of what he said, but I remember this. And he said it in the name of the Ari. It was actually a Breslover Yeshiva at this place. He said in the name of the Ari. He said that, that the Ari said, and I haven't seen this inside, but this is what he told me. He said that if a person were to actually see where they're really holding Spiritually, they would have a heart attack on the spot. So, so in other words, our, our protective layers are quite necessary to keep us alive and to keep us going. But at a certain point, at a certain point, a person has to be open to thinking that maybe there's another, there's another frame of reference that, that I don't have for myself, that I, can, that I can depend on the sages, basically, to be a more accurate mirror than my own understanding of myself at a certain point. And this is, of course, a process. And a lot of the process takes a lot of trust. Because you have to say, well, who are these people? And why should I trust them? And why should I believe them? And then that's a, that, that's, that, that, that's, that's a getting-to-know-you period. You know what I'm saying? You know, I... One of the greatest gifts that Reb Shlomo gave me was an awesome, 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 awesome appreciation of the holiness of the sages and of the tzaddikim. 
and just just how given over they were to like other people and to God and to kindness and to everything like that. You know, I mean, they were like superhuman. And I remember just as a kid, just hearing these stories, which are true stories. And I'm not talking right now about like the miracle stories, necessarily. I'm just talking about stories like people who just gave themselves over. Like, you know, like for instance, I, I'm not even going to attempt to tell the story, but just so you understand what I'm, what I'm talking about. There's a story... Um, you can. It's a, it's part of a Reb Shlomo's greatest stories uh, C, uh, CD package. And by the way, you know, there's a lot of new books coming out of uh, on Reb Shlomo, and you know, it's almost like a whole bookshelf at this point. The number of books that are out, and it's just beginning. I mean, there's going to be a whole library of books on Reb Shlomo in in not that long a period of time, you know. But um, but anyway, that aside. Um, that aside, this is, if you only get one, you only get one, I would recommend that you get Greatest Stories, Volume 1 through 4. It's a CD package with Reb Shlomo just telling over Hasidic stories. There is nothing better than that. There's nothing better than that, because you're hearing it in Reb Shlomo's voice, and the music behind him is actually quite beautiful, and... And all of a sudden, you're hearing the most elevated stories about the most elevated people, and you're, you can't not want that. You can't not want that. You just hear it, it's like, yeah, that's it. That's, that's what it is. And so this story is on there, and it's not even one of my favorite stories, by the way, but I'm just trying to tell you, I'm just trying to make a distinction between miracle stories and stories in this category. So this is about Reb David of Chernovitz. Okay? That's how you would find the story if you want to hear Rip Shlomo tell it. But anyway, just here's the, the bottom line. I'm not, like I said, I'm not attempting to tell the story or do it justice. Just, here's the bottom line. A, a family, a family is totally dirt poor. And they say, you know something? It's not fair to our children. We're, we're, we're giving them over nothing. And we're barely surviving. So you know what we should do? Since we're barely surviving anyway... Why don't we just decide to absolutely eat almost, just buy nothing for the next five years? No clothes, no nothing. And we'll just barely subside on food. And during that time, we'll be able to save up enough money to buy a farm. And then once we have a farm, then our kids are going to have a future and then we'll, we'll be able to really do it. But it's going to take absolute sacrifice for those years. We'll get the money, we'll get the farm, we'll be okay. They actually did it. They actually did it. And so it's, it's right before Shabbos, and he's going to buy one of the farms. And Reb Shlomo says, you don't just buy the first farm that you see, you know, and now it's Shabbos, so what is he going to do? Back in those days, by the way, you know, the, the Rebbe or the rabbi of the town was basically the bank. If you had some money or if you were traveling, you know, you'd give the rabbi the money and the rabbi would hold on to it and then he'd give it to you after Shabbos. You know, by the way, there's a, there's a great story and uh, it's a whole long story, but I'm just telling you the very end of the story. This is a different story, but just on the subject. Someone had won a lottery and uh, he went to cash it in and he put as much money as he could in one bag and it was like, a, like a, a treasure, like a huge sum of money. And then he couldn't fit all the coins in that bag or all the bills, whatever it is. So he put it, a few extra dollars in the, in the next bag, right? So it came Shabbos and he wasn't home yet. So he stopped at the town that was there and he gave the, the, the money to the rabbi. And the whole time, you know, Rabbi Shlomo said every step that he took on the way to the rabbi's house, on the way back from redeeming the lottery ticket, he'd pat his pocket just to make sure, every step, just to make sure that the money was still in his pocket, right? So he was very concerned about this money, obviously. I mean, he was probably poor and he just got this huge windfall. Anyway, bottom line, he gives it to the rabbi. After Shabbos, he goes to get the money back. The rabbi hands him the smaller bag first and then the man shoots the rabbi such a look. You know? And the rabbi's like, 
Wait, do, you, do you think I'm not going to... Do you think I'm not about to give you the next bag? This is the first bag I reach you. You don't think I'm going to give you the next bag? And then, here's the point of the story. He says, you know... Oh, no, no, no. I told the story wrong. He gives him the big bag first. That's what it is. He gives him the big bag first, which had like 99% of the money. And then the man shoots him an incredible look. I just gave you the whole thing. You think I'm uh, going to steal from you when I give you like your entire thing and I'm stealing this, right? So then he gives him the rest of the, the thing. And he says, and here was the point. He said, you know what it is? He says, when we, when we wake up in the morning, every time a person wakes up, God is giving you the biggest treasure in the world. And a lot of times we look to God. God's given us back our soul. He's given us another day of life. And we look at God with this mean look when we wake up. What about the other, like, uh, 20 rubles? <laughs> you know? Every morning we get this huge treasure. And we're like, yeah, God, uh, is there anything else? Uh? So, that just stays in my mind. But anyway, there are a lot of stories about rabbis holding on to money before Shabbos, you know? And being a bank, so to speak, in this way. But anyway, getting back to this, uh, the story of, with Reb David of Chernovitz. So the Chernovitz Rebbe loved Shabbos more than anything. And Rav Shlomo said that if you, if you asked him, what does Breshis mean, the first word of the Torah, he'd say, well, it's, it's simple, it means Shabbos. Bara, the next word of the Torah, what does that mean? He'd say, it means Shabbos. Elohim, what does that mean? Shabbos. Like, everything was Shabbos for him. And... Uh, So, so, so right before Shabbos, he gives him the money to hold. And before he walked in, or right when he walked in, while he was there, uh, a woman walks in, she's a widow, and she's with her daughter. And they're crying their eyes out. And he overhears the, the woman say, Rebbe, my husband died and everyone thought that he was a rich man. But really, he had a lot of debts. He didn't have any money whatsoever. I found out after he died, he had no money. And my daughter is about to get married. And the whole shidduch, the whole marriage arrangement was based on their impression that we had some, some dollars. And now when they find out that we're completely broke... They're going to call off the wedding, or that was their fear, that they're going to call off their wedding. And who knows if this girl is ever going to get married again. And how much did they need? The amount of money that this person had saved through essentially starvation of the family for a several year period. So he said, Rebbe, give her my money. And he said, what do you, well, you can't do that. It's the blood, and remember, Reb Shlomo used this phrase, he said, it's the blood of your children. Said, you can't do that. He said, listen, who knows if that girl is ever going to get married. He says, um, I can still save up again. So, they, they give, they give the, the widow, the woman, the money, and, and her daughter, and then the Rebbe blesses him, he says, listen, he says, he says, it's not just that you, that you saved their life. But listen to this. He said, you also saved their Shabbos. <laughs> because what kind of Shabbos were they, were, what, what kind of Shabbos were they about to have? And in the merit, not just of what you did, but of the Shabbos that you saved of theirs. You know... He, he blessed them incredibly, and he actually blessed them with wealth, and they became very, very, very rich. Um, and there's more to that part of the story, too. But they became very, very rich. But, um, but that aside, that, that's not a miracle story. That's not a miracle story. That's not like a story where it's sort of like, 
Here, you want to hear something incredible? I got to tell you, I, I just learned this from, from Rabbi Wilson. Amazing. There was a Rebbe the, the, uh, of Carleen, but this is in the early 1900s, and he was known as the Frankfurter. I guess he lived in Frankfurt, in Germany. And he was hidden, okay? And uh, meaning to say, you know, it's funny, I, I heard from Reb Shlomo, I think he said in the name of Rebbe Nachman, that there's some tzaddikim who are hidden, and there's some tzaddikim whose hiddenness is hidden. Meaning to say, what does that mean? That means that there's some people who you sense that they're great, but you don't have any idea of the extent of their greatness. And then there's some people who hide themselves so much that you don't even imagine that they're great. So, like, the fact that they're hiding, even that part is hidden, so that you have no concept of really who they are. So anyway, this, this tzaddik was hidden, and, uh, but at the end of his life, in order to increase faith among the Jewish people, he started doing more, 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 more miracles, basically. And uh, Rabbi Wolfson talks about this in the context of it just something very amazing. He says that when something has a name designated for it, see, a person's name has their mission in it, right? So if you look at a person's uh, Hebrew name, you, you, you'll see sort of a blueprint of what they're supposed to accomplish in this world and, and many amazing things that you can see in a person's name. So he says, though, when you designate a name for someone, you designate a place for it. So, for instance, it says in the Gomorrah, he says a very odd language, that God made the name of Mashiach. Right? God made the name of Mashiach. And he asks the question, why doesn't it just say God made Mashiach? Meaning, you know, the Redeemer. Why the name of Mashiach? Because it shows you that God himself, once you make a name of something, you designate that that thing has to take place you've essentially um, inserted a role for this thing into the plan of creation. So, so now listen to this story. So the Carlina Rebbe, told everyone whose wife was pregnant that they should line up because he's going to give the child the name. Okay, so, so people lined up. Now, if it was a boy, he, he knew beforehand who was the boys and who was the girls, who was having boys and who was having girls, and he was giving names. But that's not the story. The story is that there was someone who, who never had a child. And he was older already. And he got in line to get a name for the baby but his, this was only for people whose wives were pregnant. <laughs> so, it got to his turn, and the Rebbe gave this man's child a name. And then, when the man walked away, the man was very happy, when the man walked away, the Rebbe said, something's wrong, and he called the man back. And he said, what month is your wife in? And listen to what his answer was. He said, right before the first. <laughs> And then the man said to him in Yiddish, you acted unscrupulously, but you succeeded. And the man had a baby. Because it had been, you know, in the greatest heights of the spiritual realms, it had been designated for him. Like a role was given for this man's child, and so it has to happen. The material body is the moon. Okay, so just because you brought that up, he, he goes into that next. So you can say Brokshe Kavanti. So he starts talking about, it's a little bit off the subject, but, but let me, I'll go into that in a moment, which is the philosophy he gives. The, he's basically, Rabbi Wolfson, I would say, is the greatest gematria maker in the world today, for sure. And he gives the philosophy of gematria based on a, a, the Zohar. And I'll, I'll tell you that in a moment. But I, what I'm trying to do is just... just just to make a distinction right now, between miracle stories, like that's a miracle story. That's a miracle story. And the story that I told you about someone who saved and saved and saved and saved, and who knows what they went through. Who knows how many times they went to bed hungry. 
in order to do something. And then this man gave this money because how, could, how can I bear the suffering of another person? And, and, and gave it over to that person. So, alright, so, so what a person can be, what a person can be, Rabbi Avraham Yeshua Heschel was, made such an impression on me. He, he, made, he, he gave a quote. I just saw a tiny little... You know, it's funny. I wasn't religious at the time and I, I, I was in a place I shouldn't have been. It was a Sunday morning. Uh, and uh, I was at someone's house and for some reason the TV was on. There was like a little TV set and there was an old man with a white beard and I was like, what's, what's that guy? Who, what is this? And it was right before Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah. And he said, a person has to try to turn their life into art. And I never heard that concept before. The idea of living your life as art. Like creating something with your life. And that's what Rav Shlomo was, was doing when he was talking about... By the way, I should mention that it's Rav Shlomo's yurtzeit today. So Shlomo should have an that, that, that That when he told these stories... He was really talking about the transformation of life into art. You know? And when you hear that, and then you look around at, when I looked around at my own life, which was going extremely well, by the way. You know? I mean, I was getting everything I wanted. And, but when you saw the vastness of what's actually out there, what a human being is actually capable of, what this world is actually created for, then all of a sudden it's sort of like nothing is good enough in the best way possible. You know? You see, one of the breakthroughs that, 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 that Rib Shlomo had on, I think, our entire generation was that people in their, in their limitedness thought of, say, Judaism or Torah as some kind of institution. And I don't mean that in the sense of like a uh, prison, although I'm sure a lot of people think of it in that way too. But an institution, meaning a construct within reality. And that, you know, it's sort of like it's a temple, it's a building, or it's like it's a book, or it's a library of books. And then, but it exists within reality. And what he... What he did was, he showed you that it's beyond that. And then you'd reach some sort of greater level of enlightenment. And he'd show you, it's beyond that. It's beyond that. It's beyond that. It's reality itself. It's reality itself. The infinity of God is reality itself. That's what we're existing within. And then once you know that, it's sort of like... You know, you can have a whole shelf full of Emmys. I mean, that's great. You know, if, you don't, if it's a windy day, they're great paperweights, you know. But, I mean, it's like, but then what? You know? It's sort of like, it's like, imagine a person desires, and I'm not criticizing this desire. Someone wanted this. It's fine. I, I have no issues with this. Imagine someone wants the greatest meal cooked by the greatest chef in the world. Right? And let's say you're even kosher, right? So, alright, that, that's going to take some bucks. You don't have to spend some money. You have to hire the top chef, in the, top chef in the world. You can do it. This is a very doable thing if you have the money for it. And then you tell them, look, you make the best thing and just, here's the kosher ingredients or just, just don't use this ingredient or that ingredient or whatever it is. And that's not going to be so hard for the chef. And he'll make you, you can get the greatest chef in the world to make you his greatest meal. And then you eat it, right? Now what? (laughs) Now what? So, so this is an entirely different way to experience life. Because, and Reb Shomo says that this is one of the questions that Abraham Avinu, in his discovery of godliness, of God in this world, encountered. 
He said, it can't be that life is just, you accomplish something, and then that's it. Because how can it end? How can it end? How can you not... How can it not be applying itself or relevant to the future? I'm, I'm not expressing myself clearly right now. But, but there has to be more to life than just wanting something, having it, and now wanting to find something new. That, that can't be it. Just, I think intuitively we understand that that can't be it. So, I, I, I just want to mention this, this gematria thing. You know, it's on the Parsha. So, so Eliezer, Eliezer, by the way, Rabbi Wolfson brings down, is the son of Nimrod, which I had never heard. Not only that, but he's, he becomes the Gilgul, the reincarnation of Kalev. Kalev, of course, is one of the two leaders who brings back a good report from the, the whole Meraglam incident. Not only that, but, but, but the, and, the, and the connection, the way Rabbi Wilson just put it very simply, was that because Eliezer served Abraham incredibly, so he gets the portion of Mor Samach Pelah, which is the whole uh, gravesite of the patriarchs. So there's a whole... That, that in itself is really worthy of a lot more thinking, but I just want to give you just that, that piece of information. Anyway, Eliezer wages war with Abraham Avinu against the four kings. Now, the whole idea of the four kings, I never understood it. Rabbi Wilson explains it so clearly. You see, there are four exiles that the Jewish people are destined to go through. And we're in the fourth one right now, what they call Rome, Edom, okay? And uh, the whole idea of defeating the four kings is the idea that Avram Avinu, from the outset of the beginning of the Jewish people, since he's the first Jew, is already getting rid of the four exiles from the very beginning. You see... Everything is microcosms within microcosms. You know, we've talked about many times the idea that the Jewish people leaving Egypt and getting to Israel, that that's a microcosm of all of human history. Israel, of course, representing redemption. But you see a microcosm within a microcosm, because in Parshas Lech Lecha, Hashem says to Abraham, go to Israel. So the fact that Abraham gets to Israel in the very beginning is an assurance that we're going to make it not only just out of Egypt into Israel, but that we are going to be able to arrive on the most grand level at this stage of redemption in our history. So another microcosm is the idea that he's getting rid of the four kings, the four exiles. Another microcosm is this whole construct, which is very mysterious in the Torah, which is the first covenant that God makes with Abraham, known as the Bris Ben Abisurim, the covenant of the hats. What God tells Abraham to do is to take four animals, cut them in half, walk through them, and release a bird. What's going on there? Well, now we know. It's the four exiles being cut in half. In other words, being done away with. And then the bird being released. We have our wings. All these things, you know, you realize, wow, on the most sort of like elemental level... Abraham is addressing all of the issues that are going to confront the Jewish people over time. And, yeah? With regard to the four kings or the four exes, what the five kings to defeat them, what, 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 does he bring a remnant for that? Or no? Not there. So now, now we have this idea that how is Abraham waging war? Now this is going to get into a, a certain idea of Shaduchim, uh, marriage partners. A very interesting idea. So this was just a preface. I mean, those are ideas in and of themselves, but I just wanted to just tell you about Eliezer for a moment. So, so there's a debate among the sages like about Eliezer, because Eliezer was Abraham's right-hand man, and who he waged war with against the four kings. Now listen to this. A very strange debate among the sages, which was, what was the nature of 
Abraham's army. Was it just Eliezer? That's one opinion, believe it or not. The two of them beat the four kings. Hard to imagine, but that's one of the opinions. The other opinion is that Eliezer is Gematria 318, and there are actually 318 soldiers. And that's, that was the size of the army that Abraham used. Okay, two very, very different ideas. But anyway, we're not even going to get into that. There's a lot of Torah on that if you want to learn it. But the point here is that Eliezer, who is the first shachan, is the first matchmaker, is already being introduced on the level of gematria. That's the point. And just to clarify, Eliezer is the one who finds the wife for Abraham's son. He's the one who makes the match between Rivka and Yitzchak. Rebecca and Isaac. Eliezer is the one who does that. Okay? So, Rabbi Wolfson points out, look, here's this person who's making this first match. This person who's making this match is already being introduced on the level of Gematria. This whole thing with the war. Okay? But nonetheless, he's being introduced on the level of Gematria. Next step. It says that God blessed Abraham Bakol. Bakol is Gematria number 52, which is the same numerical equivalent as the word son. So now we have this idea of the son of Abraham, the progeny is coming down, and that also has a numerical equivalent. Alright, now listen to this. Rabbi Wolfson says in the name of the Zohar, that gematria is meant for earth. It's meant for this realm. Why? Because in the spiritual realms you don't have mathematics, you don't have physics, you don't have the the same type of measurements that math applies to in the spiritual realms as you do in the terrestrial realm. And therefore, gematria, says the Zohar, is meant for this dimension. Now, here's the point that will tie it all together. He says that marriage partners, these unions are so exalted, they're so in the upper spiritual regions, that in order to bring them down, gematria is a tool to bring them down. This is why Eliezer, who's making this match, is introduced at some stage in numerical form. This is why the first son of Abraham is introduced on the level of this numerical form. Because we know that Abraham and Sarah were absolutely incapable of having children. And so in order to bring this, these concepts down to earth, sort of like a conduit is opened up. And this is, this is why we see the numbers applying to it. So, very interesting perspective very interesting perspective worthy of much more thought and consideration um, so I just uh, just wrap it up and just end it just on a personal note um, you know uh, when I was eight years old I uh, my, my older brother got a subscription to the the Lubavitcher Children's Magazine called Talks and Tales. There we, I lived in a giant building in Manhattan and there was one, one religious Jewish family in the entire building. And she got my brother this, uh, this magazine. And I don't know if he read it, but I was like eight years old at the time. And I, I started reading it. And I remember it was the height of low tech. And there was like, it was black and white. And I just remember there was always a nature page with like some out of focus picture of an owl on <laughs> it. And it was like, it couldn't have been more low tech. But there was always one Hasidic story in the magazine. And, uh, and I remember that was my entire religious education. And that they were all the same, basically. There's a God, He loves you, and He's involved in your life. And it's like, what else do you need to know? It's, it's, I don't need to know anything else. And as a kid... That just got into my bones. And then later on, when I was 14, I started going to this, to the rabbi across the street, who happened to be Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach, you know, this world-renowned 
figure, but I didn't know that. He was just the rabbi across the street. I could see the little shul from outside my kitchen window. And I started going there. And he was... No one knew him as a pulpit rabbi. Everyone knew him as a musician. Everyone knew his music. No one knew, really, for the most part, that he was one of the greatest Torah sages of the generation. Of several generations. Anyway, so I went in there, 14, and I'd sit down, and I, he started telling over Hasidic stories. And I was like, oh, those are the Hasidic stories that I read when I was a little boy. And so my relationship to him was as a pulpit rabbi, you know, and I used to love when he yelled. That was my favorite thing in the world, you know. If he just kind of just told something and didn't get excited and start yelling, and I don't mean yelling in a mean way, like telling you off or anything like that, but if he didn't get, like, passionate and start yelling, I remember being very disappointed, you know. Maybe that's why I yell so much, because I sort of identify with that, you know. So, um, anyway, so, so... That was it. That was the connection. And after that, I was like, that's, 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 that's who it is. You know? And uh, I remember when I was 15 years old, I had just turned 15, and he had a really tiny shul. It was really tiny. And I was holding the Torah, and Simcha's Torah, and I was dancing with it. And I just remember thinking, this is my whole life. I just felt a sense of peace, and I felt like... You know, now my lifestyle was you know, not connected to any of these things at the point. And it took me about a decade to get to that place. But, but nonetheless, I remember feeling that inner sense of peace. And, and, and that inner sense of peace was assigned to me throughout all of my future travels and, I would say, mistakes. Because, because that was... That was the flash of light in the desert that we talked about in the beginning, in the, in the metaphor of the Rambam. For me, that was the flash of light in the desert. I knew that there was something more. And once I knew that there was something more, I couldn't be satisfied with less. I couldn't. I couldn't do it. And uh, anyway, I, I love you, Reb Shlomo. I'll never stop loving you, and I'm, I'm, I'm eternally, 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 eternally grateful to you that you allowed me to see, like, just an inch beyond, like, my own nose, you know? And to allow me to, 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 to understand that, that life can be art, and that this world is here just waiting for us to transform it into something more beautiful. Thank you.